0: Getting out of an abusive relationship early makes a huge difference. And I'm proud to say I did come in as a victim, but I am a survivor. Then I could see my mom. My mom was walking toward us. And I got excited. And it was like, there's my mom. And then he didn't stop. I'm trying to keep it together, I said. I gave in to the tears. And I hated that. It, it's not necessarily the easiest process. It's not necessarily the prettiest process, but it is the most effective process. Like, you can do this. I'm going to tell you 100% you can do this, and you're so worth it to do this. I'm sure losing any child is, is a real arrow through your heart, but, but uh, you know, she was, she was great. She was a, a, a friend and a family member and our daughter.
1: It feels just as good the 10th time as it did the first time, Uh, to have one of your citizens that you're out there protecting walk up and tell you thank you.
0: There is one thing stronger in me than fear, and that's my determination. Welcome back. This is Jen Lee, the creator and host of I Need Blue, Survivors Talk Surviving. Visit www.ineedblue.net for additional stories. As you listen, if the message moves you, share it with friends and family. The more we share, the more we learn, and the more we can help each other. Interested in being part of the message? Sponsorships and advertising packages are available online at www.ineedblue.net. Please note, I Need Blue does contain stories which feature graphic content and could be triggering. Please seek help if needed. Remember, you always come first. I have a special friend with me today. He is here to share his story about being a restaurant owner whose business sadly became part of a growing statistic. It's now time to welcome Alan Stone, otherwise known as Stoney
1: i was a restaurant owner one evening we had uh, we're just closing up the business and the next thing i hear is get me the money or i'll kill him." get me the money those were the first words i heard the evening we were being held up a friend of mine a robbery detective was at the restaurant and had met with a group of friends to discuss his high school reunion after the meeting with this group, they had departed. The detective stayed in the restaurant as we were starting to close for the evening. Also remaining were the chef, the general manager, the bartender, a waitress, and myself. As two gunmen burst into the restaurant through the heavy saloon doors in the bar lounge area, and hearing the commands, get me the money or I'll kill him, get me the money, get your hands up, one of the gunmen held the chef behind with his arm around his chest. I was approximately three feet in front of him, and he yelled, get me the money or I'll kill him. I told him we would get him the money, and he yelled, don't look at me. As he pointed the gun at my face, I said, I'm not looking. The detective was three to four feet to my left, and the gunman yelled, don't look at me, then shot the detective in the face, point blank. Initially, when they first came in and I saw the gun and okay, and I realized we were being held up, that was fine. But when the first gunshot went off, when the police officer was shot in the face, I just thought to myself, we're all going to be killed tonight. Then uh, as we were told later to lie on the floor, I just remember my children's lives mm-hmm. uh, passing in front of me. At this point, I positioned myself in front of the bar and looking into the bar mirror, I was trying to get the description of the second gunman. He noticed what I was doing and put a gun at my head and told me not to look at him. I complied and we were all told to lay down in front of the bar. As I was lying on the floor, I was shot. The bullet went through my elbow and I laid on the floor pretending to be dead. Around one to two minutes went by, and it was completely silent. I could hear the compressors running behind the bar and a slight tapping of a chain hitting the globe from one of the ceiling fans. I started to press on the floor to get up, but somehow remembered I didn't hear the saloon doors. They make a back-and-forth sound when being opened or closed. A few moments later, a gunshot goes off. Pop! It scared me, and I jerked. Didn't know how I wasn't noticed. A few seconds later, another gunshot. Pop! Then I hear one of the gunmen yell, bang, let's get out of here. Next thing I knew, I get kicked in the ribs as I hear someone running. Then those saloon doors go flying open, and I hear the glass door being pushed open. I waited around 10 seconds and got up. The first thing I did was run to the doors and pull the doors from the vestibules closed and locked them. Then I ran back in, obviously witnessing the tragedy that took place with the chef, the manager and the police officer all lying on the floor in a massive pool of blood. When I peeked around the corner, I saw that the bartender was on the telephone with 911. Apparently she must've just made the call. She handed me the phone right away then told 911 that uh, been involved in a robbery and that there was a police officer involved and people were shot we we're going to need a helicopter we need help as soon as possible 911 operator said there's a police officer involved and i said yes and he's been shot he's in bad shape we need help right away the bartender said to me that the uh, chef was choking and i went back out in front of the bar where everyone was lying. Somehow he had gotten, I guess, on his back and I turned him over and turned his head to the side. And at that point in time, unfortunately, I was knee deep in blood.
0: your restaurant the original Target that night?
1: Around the corner from my business. Uh, and these robbers had been casing for about a month. and. They learned that when the manager would leave in the evening to make a night drop, he would have a bag and a briefcase. And one night he would make the deposit from the briefcase and one night from the bag. That particular night, they said that the deposit was going to be made from the bag. So when the manager came out to go to the bank to make his night drop, they robbed him in the parking lot. They got into the vehicle. And then they reached into the bag and it was full of cookies. Hmm. This upset them. They drove around the corner. They saw my business and said, let's get them. They got a bank and they saw the police officers on Mark Cruiser in the parking lot.
0: You had already made the night drop.
1: I had shortly before this incident took place. I had made a substantial deposit at a night drop at a bank across the street from the business. What seemed like forever, I I heard the ambulances come. I ran to the front door and opened up the door and the uh, paramedics were the first on the scene. They came in and the next thing I realized there were probably 30 police officers inside the, the restaurant lounge area at the time, tending, asking questions. What did they look like? What were they dressed like? Their height, weight. Hair just asking for all the particulars so they could uh, try to uh, set up some type of dragnet, narrow it down and try to find these guys before they had gotten too far out of the area. At that point in time, when the paramedics came, they were taking the uh, police officer out. At that time, one of the police officers walked over to me and said, uh, how are you? And I said, I- I'm okay. Are you hurt? And I said, well, I've been shot. And he said... You've been shot? I said, yes. My arm was bleeding pretty well. I guess he couldn't see it from his uh, view. The uh, gunman stood over top of me when he shot me. He actually was trying to shoot me in the head. For some unknown reason, he missed and it went through my elbow. And at that time, I just acted like I was dead. A few minutes later, he moved over to the others and shot them, executed them, actually. When I was shot, it, uh, somebody putting a hot poker in your arm. I definitely felt that. I mean, I knew I was in, in pain. I didn't know the severity of it. We're going to have to get you down to the hospital. So they took me down to the hospital. The hospital wasn't far from us. Ten-minute ride. When I got there, a couple of my friends, one was a homicide detective, one was a robbery detective, uh, came into the hospital. Of course, they were asking me, you know, any details I could offer so they could get it out. Plus they were there for, for support they had done x-rays and, and wrapped my arm up at that point in time. They said I needed to go back to the restaurant. The amount of blood on the floor was just un- unbelievable to, to, to witness. I don't know. There must have been 50, 60 police officers in there. They were re- relaying the, the information. You could hear them. The police officer talking to other officers. I guess they were out on the street, campus in the area. And they were setting up roadblocks, and you know they they were really trying to uh, do due diligence and 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 find these guys as quickly as possible, uh, but to no avail. That was the the start of the the manhunt. Detective friend, the homicide detective. He, he drove me home. Kids came out asking me if I was okay. Kind of unwrapped my arm so they could see what happened and clean it. The bullet had gone on one side and out the other. so it had gone through the elbow. I think I took a shower or something and and they wanted me back. There was a uh, a reporter that was pretty renowned in the Washington DC area, and he was there as well. They were very uh, supportive of the police department. So they were trying to get as much information out to the public on the, new, the local news stations as well. So he had asked me many, many questions of what took place, so forth and so on. And, you know, trying to, to do whatever they could to help to try to get, you know, the information out to the public in the metropolitan area to try to capture these people as soon as possible. I went back to the restaurant, your mind, you start thinking and reliving we decided to close the restaurant until we could uh, figure out what we were going to have to do as far as make arrangements for for funerals and that type of thing. Meanwhile, the police officer was uh, in the hospital undergoing a number of surgeries. Shot in the face and it had gone lodged down behind his ear. It had blown his eardrum out and knocked some teeth out, knocked his jaw out of alignment and they literally had to open him up from about the middle of his head back and try to get that fragment out. It wasn't too long after this had taken place, they called me to go to the police department and tried to do an artist rendering drawing of, of him. I had a pretty good recollection of what he looked like. So they drew it, they got it out. There were uh, reporters in front of my home and they were, you know, reporting on this every day. I mean, it was a big story, obviously, a terrible tragedy that took place. This was on the front page of the Washington Post. It was on every TV station, every radio station constantly. After the robbery that night, when they were running out and leaving the building, a shot went off. I guess they had shot the gun by mistake. And there was a bowling alley across the street. And it caught the attention of a gentleman when he looked and saw people running away from the business. They also have walkie-talkies. They had ran down uh, a street in the neighborhood and called over to where the bowling alley was, where the uh, getaway driver was parked. So she, it was a female, and she went to go pick them up. And fortunately, the gentleman that had s- seen them running and then saw the vehicle leave. He reported that to the police. They put a dragnet in the whole metropolitan area again, looking for that type of vehicle. They were being pulled over all over the metropolitan area, and a couple of friends of mine called me and asked me to call the police department and ask them not to pull them over again because it was like their fourth time they'd been pulled over and searched. The police, God bless them, were doing due diligence. They were out there trying to find these guys. Not too long after that, a couple of house detectives at one of the local police stations picked up a young man in a neighboring county to question another robbery that took place. They simply asked him, do you know anything what happened at Stoney's? And he said, yes, I was there. The the police officers, after he had he said that he had was there. They just couldn't believe it, that he just gave them that information with just the question they asked him. He gave up all the addresses of where the other people lived. So the uh, SWAT teams uh, went to the various homes and arrested them. The one gentleman that they arrested, he had taken the police officer's gun that night. They found it. It was under, he was sleeping on a couch, and they found it under a pillow. So there were five involved altogether. Two came in with guns, one to a lookout, one in the getaway car with the other gentleman.
0: What was the age range?
1: Between 17 to like 23 years old. They had not been drinking, no drugs. Uh, we did find out later that they had done three other armed robberies that night. They had gone into Virginia and robbed a video store the gun and put it down the mouth of a 16-year-old girl, robbed her. They followed a guy, gone and made a withdrawal at, at a bank. They robbed him and then they robbed the Hardee's restaurant right around the corner from me. And they saw Stoney's and said, let's get Stonies." They got a bank. And that's when they decided to come in and rob Stoney's and they were mad. And that was one of the things that we thought it was kind of strange. They were really mad when they came in the door.
0: Did they live in the area, and had they ever been in your restaurant um, before?
1: No, they had never been in there. One of them lived in a neighboring county, and the other four lived 10 miles, 3 o'clock in the morning, whatever. I got a really loud knock on my door at my home, which scared me to death. So I walked down the steps and turned the light on. It was two, uh, detectives. I opened the door and I said, I said, what's going on? You know, and I said, you guys scared me to death. He said, we got him. And I said, Oh my God. So my, of course my wife had run down the steps. It was very early in the morning. I turned on the news and they showed him in handcuffs being taken out, put in the police cars, taken to jail, the local jail for holding part of the tragedy with this whole thing is, is. My manager had a, uh, a five year old, a three year old and a three month old child. We had no choice. We were trying to get back to business and, uh, my arm at that point had been put in a cast. 13 people quit business owners in the area were getting phone calls with people saying you're next. Everybody was scared, wanted to know what was going to be done. And the others that were working there said, they wouldn't work at the business any longer if there wasn't security. So fortunately for me, knowing all the police officers that I did know, probably 90% of the time that I was, the doors were open. There was always a police officer or two or more in the building, either having lunch, dinner, or coming by and say hello. And they were major supporters of the business. But when I couldn't find anybody, I had to hire them as security, which is extremely costly. We lost 50% of the business right away. And then uh, at some point, I get a phone call after they had caught these guys, and they needed to do a lineup. myself, the bartender, and the waitress that was there that night. But she was in a, she put herself in a cubby hole. But they wanted me to identify the the first guy, and he was the one that I could only see half of his face. Then when they brought out the second set of people. The other gunmen that had come in, I picked him out right away and knew exactly who he was. And he was the one that I got a real good look at. I'm going to say it was over a year before we started the court process.
0: Were they in jail then during this whole time?
1: They were all in jail and no bond. So the first court case we went to, they were going for the death penalty. All the evidence is what really backed up what happened. The witnesses obviously, you know, has a great impact on it, but just, just the, all the evidence in the bullets and the gun that they re- recovered and so forth. And time for the jury to deliberate. They came back with a second degree murder charge in which we were actually devastated by. And the reason being is there was, I found out later there was a lady on the jury. Who said that the robber perpetrator reminded her of her son. There was no way that she could uh, convict him. They ended up caving in and he got second degree murder, but he got a very lengthy sentence from the judge from all the other charges that were made. I think his whole, I think it was 230 years thereabouts was his sentence. He's still in jail. Then the next court case was uh, the shooter. Which was very hard because, you know, near now, when you're in the courtroom, you're not far from these guys. I mean, you're, I'm going to say within 10, 12 feet. What it brings out of you is something you're probably not, the anger and the, the, the frustration. You just want to retaliate. Of course, he came out and they got him in a suit and he's sitting down at the table. And, you know, we go through all the testimonies again and all the pictures of the autopsies. It was very traumatic. It's like you see on TV to a point, but worse, we go through the finish the court proceedings. The jury goes out, they come back with a guilty verdict, and he's given the death sentence, which we were thrilled about you know of course, the TV cameras and everybody were there and wants to want to know how you felt about the sentence and like they say, if you want to do the crime, you're going to have to pay to due to do the time. The next court procedures were the female was the next one. She was the driver of the getaway car. She was the sister of the shooter. She had had a young child as well, like I think a two or three-year-old. We went to court on them, and he was testifying against. He was turning state's evidence on all the, all the people. He actually ended up getting, a, uh, I think, a five-year house arrest. The female, when uh, the verdict was reached for her, she got a life sentence. So she is still in jail the second guy that came in with the gun he is still in jail I'm mean, the lookout guy uh, that was at the front door he was actually killed in jail he was uh, stabbed to death in jail and also the uh, shooter that came into our business was also killed in jail I think it was a old friend of her his also stabbed to death in jail you know as time went on after this uh, the business just slowly but surely deteriorated and uh, get, out, get out of the business altogether.
0: It's not realized that when somebody dies, like the employees who also were your very good friends who passed away, police officers were the ones who had to go knock on the door to the, their home and tell their families, listen, he's not coming back. You know, imagine the courage they must have to have and to be able to do that.
1: People think that they're not impacted by these things, but they are. And it's not easy for them to do these type of things. It wasn't easy for my friend to call my wife and tell her that I had been shot in a holdup, in a robbery, because he knew my wife. The police officers that went to my manager's home to to wake his wife up to tell her that her husband had just been murdered and she had three young children at home. And I know this to be a fact, these guys were working almost 24 hours a day trying to find these people to get them off the streets, to keep it from happening to somebody else. But we had found out later that these people were responsible for many, many, many robberies prior to this set up a gang, were robbing people when they were going to the ATM machines and they were robbing 7-Elevens. It's just an uh, unbelievable experience. So really when you hear the whole story, the ripple effect of these things after they take place, hard to comprehend because of the impact, the impact on your friends, your family, uh, your future, you know, uh, what it does to you personally. Mentally, it's just a travesty. But, you know, being involved with the police department like I was for so many years and being involved in crime solvers for 20 plus years, 24 years, people have to understand they need to support their police departments. Without them, they're never going to be safe. You have to have law and order, and you have to have people that care, and you have to have people that are concerned about what's taking place to keep us all safe. These guys, they, they're they underpaid, they're overworked. You know, today it's worse than ever. We're gonna to have to be careful because it's, if if, it, if people don't change, they're gonna become a victim themselves one day. And then they're gonna understand why they need these police officers. Yeah, I mean, you know, they're just like us. I mean, they want the same thing we all want. They wanna, you know, they wanna enjoy life. They want to take care of their families. They want to enjoy the fruits of their labor, you know, live like the rest of us and be safe at this point in time in our lives. They're being victimized. It's unbelievable. Like I said, nobody wants a cop till they need a cop. And believe me, at some point in time, everybody needs a police officer at one point in time. They're going to need a police officer.
0: Now, I have to absolutely agree with you. And that's part of the reason for the podcast is to take real life stories because until you're a victim turned survivor like you and like me, you don't get it. And you're right. You watched, I mean, police officers are retiring, they're leaving every day. And particular cities, it's like, I don't know what they thought was going to happen, but they're finally waking up and realizing, oh, wait a second, maybe we need our police officers. But how many people have to be hurt and how many people have to be a victim before they, before they get it? It's very frustrating to people like you and me who know how essential they are. But Stoney, I really appreciate you being here today and sharing your story.
1: My son happens to be a police officer now will thank him for his do, service. And I do thank him. I am so glad to hear my son's voice every day mm-hmm. uh, or every other day. Uh, we're very close and I'm very glad to hear his voice and really understand what they go through is, is something that people really need to know. I mean, if they could do a ride along sometime or just buy a police officer a cup of coffee and, and, and talk you know, and, and pick their brain a little bit, they would probably be surprised the stress that they are under mm-hmm. and how hard they work to protect everyone.
0: This is Jen Lee, creator and host of I Need Blue podcast. If you like this story and you would like to check out others, visit www.ineedblue.net And remember, you are stronger than you think.